Would you take God's word this morning and turn with me, please, to Isaiah and chapter 2. The prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 5. Isaiah 2 from verse 5. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore do not forgive them. Enter into the rock. And hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Upon everything lifted up and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Sever yourselves from such a man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? Let's pray once more. O God in heaven, grant that we this day may take to heart what your servant spoke so many centuries ago. Lord, it echoes down to us through the years with as much force and power, perhaps even more so, than it did when first he spoke. Grant, O God, that we may hear you speak in your word this day, for we ask it through Christ our Saviour. Amen. What are you going to be relying on when the day of judgment comes? What is your hope and where is your help?
That day is not far off in God's grand scheme. I'm not suggesting that the things that we're seeing around us are indications that within days or weeks or months, Christ will return. But when there are wars and there are rumours of wars, when there is these kinds of distresses in, in the world and in the cosmos at large, it is no bad thing for us to be reminded that these are indications that this world is passing away. Where will you stand and on what basis when that moment comes? Isaiah was asking Israel that question in his day. It was a society that had become corrupt and was on the point of collapse. These were God's chosen people. And yet you hear Isaiah both mourning and accusing as we read chapter 2 because they have turned away from God and they have turned to idols. They have filled their hearts and their hands and their houses with the fruits of wickedness, with the pursuits of godlessness. And so casual they are in their danger. They think they are secure and yet they are utterly exposed. They imagine themselves safe, and yet their doom is coming. And Isaiah is challenging them. What is going to sustain you when that moment of crisis comes? What will be your confidence? And even here, Isaiah is pointing beyond any temporal judgment. Now, the Chaldeans are coming. The Babylonians and the, the Syrians, there are different phases to this. Isaiah would be warning about what lies ahead in terms of judgments upon Israel in the here and now. But he's pointing further. He's pointing toward that day, the day in which God will make himself known when the Lord arises to shake the earth mightily. Ultimately, Isaiah is speaking not about something that happens on earth temporarily, but about the last and eternal judgment of God. The same spirit, the same tone, the same emphasis is found in the preachers of the New Testament. For example, in Acts and chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul is speaking to the men of Athens, as he comes to the end of his sermon, remember he begins with Christ crucified and risen. He responds to the scorn and the mockery of the Athenians. And he tells them that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him. Him from the dead. And it's no accident that in Revelation and chapter 6, when the Apostle John is giving us this uh, language, this imagery, this portent of the coming judgment, that he picks up Isaiah's language. In chapter 6 and verse 15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Perhaps the most terrifying phrase in your Bible, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It is then in that sense and with that perspective that we will take 
the language of Isaiah 2 this morning. We're going to concentrate on the, the summary statement that he makes at the end of this chapter. And I want to hold before you four couplets. I want you to look with me at the gold and the silver. I want you to think about the moles and the bats. I want you to think about the rocks and the crags. And I want you to consider the terror and the glory. The gold and the silver, the moles and the bats, the rocks and the crags, and the terror and the glory. First of all, the gold and the silver. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship. We're told earlier in the chapter that these things are the, the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. Now these idols... In Isaiah's time, they are actual images. They're made of gold and silver. They are representations of that which Israel, which should have known the God of heaven, had been told who he was, had received his mercies. But they have created and they are trusting and they are worshipping that which is not God. Fundamentally, Isaiah says, you have cast the living and true God aside and you have become little God makers. Isn't it a tragic thing? The folly of idolatry, not just its awful sinfulness in being against God, but that men will trust something that their own strength and wisdom has established. I often say to people, do you realize that you're trusting in something that is by definition less than you are? If you can make it, what makes you think it will save you? If you have spun this out of your own strength and wisdom, then it can pass away just as swiftly. And yet here you are making these things and you esteem them and you value them and you rest upon them and you invest on them and you thoughtlessly and casually rely upon them. You think you are safe without God. Because of your idols of gold and your idols of silver. And you make your way through this world imagining that there is no harm in store for you. That no danger will come upon you. When it does, your idols will have your back. When it does, these things that you have made, which you've invested in, which, which are precious to you and valuable in your sight. These are the things which will help you. Psalm 115, eyes that they can't see, ears that they can't hear, feet but they can't move, hands but they cannot act, they have mouths but they do not speak with any kind of clarity. Isaiah will himself mock these false gods in chapter 40. And he tells about a man who goes into the forest, he cuts down a tree, half of it he burns in the fire to keep himself warm. The rest of it he sets up, but he has to chain it down so that no one can steal away his God and that it won't topple and totter and fall when things become difficult. Jeremiah makes the same critique in chapter 10. Idolatry isn't dead. Just because fewer people, at least in our society, are bowing down to images does not mean that idolatry 
is dead. Men are still God-makers, small g. Men are still making gods in their own image. They are still trusting in what their own strength and wisdom can concoct to keep them from all harms and dangers. And it's tragic to see in a society so corrupt and so close to collapse as ours is, the same spirit of human self-reliance. Looking to something that is not God to do what only God can do. Trusting in someone who is not God for their help and their hope. And there are idolaters here this morning. If you are not a Christian, you are an idolater. You may not be on your face before a little image. You may perhaps even imagine yourself to be a Christian while still an idolater. What do I mean by that? One of the great idols of our time is man-made religion. Now, man-made religion is easy to point at out there with false gods that clearly are not God, whether it's the, the gods of the Hindu or whether or not it's the Allah of the Muslim, whether it's the, uh, the, the various schemes and dreams of men about what God himself may be. Most of the cults will call themselves Christian. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they'll want to talk to you about Jesus, but he's not a Jesus that you'll recognise from the Bible. But you can come even closer to home. There are people who will go to churches that have the name of Christian congregations. And they will pat themselves on the back because they've done church. And they will sing hymns, sometimes with gusto. Perhaps now they'll, they'll basically participate in some kind of concert that makes them feel temporarily good. And they'll mistake the emotional high of being pummeled by the music to the spiritual reality of knowing the living and the true God. Or perhaps they'll be there in the gloom and in the shade, in the, the rigid formality with the smells and the bells of an outward reverence, imagining that these are the things that will keep them safe in the day of judgment. My friends, if your religion is formed and fashioned by yourself, if it is what you have done that you think makes you right with God, if it's the mere externals upon which you rely, then you are bowing down to an idol of your own making. Religion, apart from the living God, is an idol. Wealth is an idol, literal silver and gold. There are people who think that harm will not touch them because they've got enough. If you tell them, what are you gonna do if trouble comes? They'll, they'll point to their bank balance. They'll talk about their bitcoins. They'll speak about their business dealings. For some people, it's knowledge. It's mere human reason. The world, you understand, is gripped by an idolatry with regard to its own wisdom. You can literally see the nations clashing with one another and there are people saying, don't worry, we've got the answer. We can do this by force of arms. We can do this. Send me in. I'll negotiate. I'll sort out all the trouble. We trust our political systems. 
We trust our voting Tory or Labour or whatever else you're choosing to vote at this point in time. We rely upon our good old parliamentary democracy. This is what's going to hold us together. This is what's going to stop trouble coming. We can make idols of our reputation. But people know I'm a good person. That's what's going to help me in time and that's what I'll rely on in eternity. We can make an idol of our own pleasures. I'm happy enough now. I've got what I need. I can just get on with life and there's nothing for me to worry about. In Isaiah 31, the prophet uses very similar language and he's very pointed. In that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. Couldn't be blunter, could it? Whatever you have created or concocted, whatever you're trusting in or relying in that is not the living and true God is a sin. It is an idol. It is transgression against God. You have displaced the Lord. You have turned your back upon him and you have brought something else in in his place. And Isaiah says to you and to me just as much as he did to Israel of old that your idols of gold and of silver will do nothing for you. Our society may not have its idols of gold and silver, but it has the works of its own hands, the creations of its own wisdom. And people rely upon it for their help and their hope in time, and ultimately for eternity. And you'll not need to knock on more than three or four doors in this neighbourhood to hear men and women boast in their idols because they're British or Turkish or Hindu or Muslim or Jehovah's Witnesses or they're too clever for this stuff or they're good people and they don't need it. What are they doing? They're parading before you their idols, their spiritual idols of silver and gold, precious and valuable in their own sight. Gold and silver, moles and bats. In that day, when the crunch comes, when there is a real need, when Christ in his glory returns... In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats. You see, it happens in time. How much more will it happen in eternity? Now the crisis comes. Now the issue is at hand. And now the idols must be utterly abandoned. How will you stand before God in that day and claim your goodness, your religion, your best efforts, your niceness, your morality? The idols will be cast to one side because they are being exposed as worthless. Look at verse 17 and 18. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down. The haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. 
It is a day of terror and shame. Ezekiel, when he's talking about the temporal judgments, which are a picture of the eternal day, talks about people running out into the streets and they're throwing away their gold and their silver because it won't do them any good. In fact, it becomes a trouble to them. It's cast away to the moles and to the bats. Now, everybody here, I think, knows where the moles live. Everybody here knows where the bats live. We're talking about the holes and the dark places of the earth. They are going to cast these treasured idols in which they've been trusting and on which they've been resting into the dark places out of sight. They will abandon them utterly. Why? First of all, because they see their worthlessness. Isaiah will talk later on about Israel in his day leaning on Egypt. And he says it is a rotten crutch. You ever walked with a crutch? You know the clever modern ones, don't you, with the little uh, spring-loaded clips? Can you imagine leaning on one of those and the spring gives way? Or the pin falls apart? And you're leaning all your weight upon it and utterly it falls under you. You go on a walk, you're trying to climb, you're resting on a stick and it snaps under your weight. The idols are going to snap under your weight, says Isaiah. They will give way when you most need them. The things upon which you trust if it is not God as he makes himself known in Christ. At the very points at which you need it most. That will be when you see how empty and worthless it is. They'll cast these idols away to the moles and to the bats. Because they will see how worthless they are. But more than that they will feel their encumbrance. These are the things that are going to weigh them down and impede them as they try to run and hide. That's even more tragic, isn't it? Not just that these things aren't going to help me, now they become a hindrance to me. Can you imagine judgment coming? And here's this idol that you've made. It's this piece of wood that you've cut out and you've cut it down and you've, you've fashioned it and now it's gold and silver. You've chained it to the floor and now you're thinking, how do I run away with my idol? Ever tried to run away with anything heavy? They cast it away because the very thing in which they trusted now becomes a hindrance to them. They're beginning to see these things for what they are. When they were chained to the floor and they were bowing down to them in their homes and in their temples, how highly they thought of them. But now they become nothing more than an encumbrance. They're getting in the way of their safety. And perhaps something even worse. They see their worthlessness, yes. They feel their encumbrance, yes. But they fear their punishment. Because when God comes, he will search out the idolater. Far from being the thing which will help in that hour, these will be the very cause of the punishment that comes upon the wicked. This is the incriminating evidence that they have not trusted in God and walked in his way. The very idols of which they once were so proud have become the tokens of the sin which is now going to be punished. <clears throat> 
Imagine a criminal who has carried out an impressive bank heist. He has stolen a collection of gold. And he's hidden it about his person. He's hidden it well. He's bound it around his waist in a hidden belt. It's sewn into the linings of his jackets. It's woven into the hems and the seams of his clothing. And he's trying to escape. He's trying to escape by water. And the ship has sunk under him as the police close in. What a quandary. My treasure is on my person. If the police catch me, I'm done for. But I can't even get it out of my clothes. I can't get rid of it. It's the very thing that is dragging me down into the watery depths. This is the point at which the thief may wish that he had nothing to do with the gold, that he hadn't bound it so closely about him, that he hadn't trusted in it to help him make his escape. The very thing that he thought was going to give him an easy life from this point on is the damning evidence and the destructive force of his own demise. The day is coming when the things in which this world trusts, the things in which perhaps you are trusting now, are going to be utterly exposed. You will see their worthlessness. You will feel their encumbrance. And you will feel fear the punishment that attends them. And you will wish that you could cast them away into the dark places where no one will see them and no one will know them. When you can bury your sinful trusts your transgressions and your idols out of sight and out of mind because you will understand that these are the very things that will damn you, the very things that God esteems as worthless. And that brings us to the rocks and the crags because the worst of this situation is not the abandonment of the idols, it's the fact that now a panic sets in. We were trusting in our idols of gold and in our idols of silver. We've seen their worthlessness. We felt their encumbrance. We fear the punishment that is associated with them. We've abandoned that in which we were trusting. And now what will we do? Now where will we turn? Now where can we hide? They will go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rocky rocks. Now these people are desperate for refuge. Now they understand just how exposed they are. The defences upon which they've relied have utterly crumbled. And now the terror and the glory of the Lord is upon them. And they are desperately seeking refuge in the crevices and in the clefts of the rock. Their idols have been abandoned they have fallen where they lie they cannot help them and they see that but where is help now to be found where is the hope of a sinner in this day where is the help that they need still safety is required but they are now utterly exposed that upon which they had trusted has crumbled to nothing And here they are racked with guilt and with shame and with fear. Their sin has been revealed and it is deeply felt. And they are fleeing from the majesty of God as he makes himself known. 
And my friends, can you imagine the horror of the day of judgment? And the Bible does not in any way hold back. Every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and scorned him. Those who despised the Christ of God. Those who had no thought of him. Those who thought he needed supplementing. Those who played with him and toyed with him. Those who hated him and assaulted him. Those who denied him and despised him. They shall see Messiah coming in his glory. The wrath of the Lamb will be upon them. And they'll be desperately trying to find somewhere to hide. Because their hiding place has proved worthless. Their help and their hope has been brought, no, been brought low. How many people do you know who actually think that heaven and hell are real? Most of the time, neither. They live as if there were no heaven to come, no heaven to be gained. No hell ahead, no hell to be feared and avoided. At a push, when death draws near, or when you really turn the screw, I'm going to heaven. They're in a better place. No one is going to doubt heaven or hell in the day of judgment. No no one is going to imagine in that day that judgment is a fiction, that Christ is a mere fantasy, that the great white throne is somehow just a mere symbol. No one is going to imagine in that day that their petty religion, that their feeble acts of devotion to a God who is not found in the pages of his book, that their goodness their worthiness, their righteousness, their attainments, their systems, their policies, their plans, their strength of arms. No one is going to imagine that those things will do anything for them. No one is going to be able to mass their armies at the borders of an opposing nation. No one is going to be able to send a task force to stand against the Lamb in his glory when he comes conquering and to conquer the entire world living and dead will be called to judgment in that day and those who have lived and died without regard for Christ will be desperately seeking some refuge in the day when no refuge is left their idols exposed panicking with a desire for a place in the rocks and in the crags where they can be covered from the glory of the Lord and the brightness of his coming. When he arises to shake the earth mightily, God will rise to judgment. We are living in days when people say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they always have done. We're fine. Our idols are working for us. Our convictions, our systems, 
Our strength, our wisdom is enabling us to go on in this world without any difficulty, without any trouble. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Verse 10. Verse 18. The idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And verse 21. They will go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. This is that language from Revelation chapter 6. This is the language of the God of heaven coming in might. This is the language of the risen Christ coming in his glory. This is the moment at which the King of kings and the Lord of lords is revealed in such a way that every eye shall see him. Every tongue shall confess of those on the earth, those in heaven, those under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord Amen. to the glory of God the Father. This is Christ in his heavenly splendour. This is the one who would have saved all who called upon him. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And that will be a terrible day in the truest sense of the word. Our God is a consuming fire. And those who think of him as some kind of up there teddy bear are going to have their perspective fearfully rearranged in the moment when the glory cloud disgorges the King of Kings. When those who have had no regard for the living God, when you, if you have trusted in something that is not the Christ of the Bible, that is the day when the judgment will be falling upon you. How will you stand before Christ in the splendour of his majesty on the day of judgment? How will you stand when he comes in his glory with all his holy angels with him to sit on the throne of his glory and to judge the living and the dead, to divide this whole world into those two groups? Those on his right, the sheep, welcome into my kingdom. Those on his left, the goats, depart from me. I never knew you. It's one thing to go out onto the streets and to talk to people who are trusting in idols. It is heartbreaking, door after door, to be told by people that they have something else and that they do not need Christ and the salvation that is in him. But I'm not out on the doors this morning. I'm in here and I'm speaking to you. What are you trusting in for the day of judgment? What are you relying upon 
What is valuable? What is precious? What have you invested in? For peace now and for glory to come. What enables you to pillow your head at night? What gives you confidence in the face of the trouble that is taking place in the world at large? What enables you to smile in the face of your own sickness and the prospect of death? Why do you think that you will go to heaven? Every false god and every idol will fall in that day and will be flung away. Every created refuge will fail. I cannot paint to you in words the horror of sitting in this building today to hear of a God who saves, only to find him coming as the God who judges because you would not have him when he was offered to you in Jesus Christ. The only, the only way of safety is for you to throw your idols away now. You'll all throw them away sometime. I plead with you, don't let it be on the day when judgment comes you find that you are still clinging to that which cannot save. See them now for their worthlessness. Your wisdom cannot save you. Your strength cannot deliver you. Your goodness, your religious performances, your best efforts, your schemes and systems, your reputation and your pleasures, they will not sustain you in time, let alone for eternity. Do you not see how empty they are? Can you not see how the things in which the world is trusting are crumbling around our ears? Do you not feel their encumbrance? For some of you, they're the things that are stopping you coming this morning to Jesus Christ. You're holding on to them while Christ is held out to you. And you cannot receive Christ by faith while the hands of your soul are gripping the things that will pass away. You need to let go of anything that is not Jesus Christ. You need to understand that this is what will hold you back and drag you down. Do you fear their punishment? It's not neutrality. It's not just that you, you happen to think that this was a good thing and you just weren't too sure. God says, if you're trusting in something other than me, it is a damnable sin. If you're looking for help and for hope in something that is not Christ, then it is worthy of condemnation. Do you understand what your idols will do to you in the day of judgment? They will be the very evidence that God brings against you, that you are worthy of condemnation. They will be the very things that will drag you down to hell. And so I plead with you this morning, clear out the chambers of your hearts.
You are a worshipper. God made you so. And you will worship either God or that which is not God. And so I urge you, look not so much into your hand, houses or into your hands, although perhaps some of you will need to go home and do that. But look into your heart. What sits on the throne? Is it Jesus of Nazareth? Is it the Son of God who saves? Is it the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the earth? Who will help you now? Who do you hope in for eternity? If anyone or anything but Jesus the Christ of God is the ground of your hope, then cast it from you now. Lest when the judgment comes, you abandon it to the moles and the bats, and you look in panic to the rocks and the crags to cover you from the judgment of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. If you turn from your idols now, then on the day when the terror of the Lord is revealed, and in the day when the glory of his majesty is seen, when God arises to shake the earth mightily, you will be in the kingdom which does not shake. You will be in the Christ who saves. You will be in the Redeemer. You will be hidden in the cleft of his side, your life hidden with Christ in God. There is a refuge for sinners. It is not in the idols of silver and gold. There is a refuge for sinners, and it is not in the rocks and the crags of this world. It is not in the strength and wisdom of men. It is Christ the rock who was cleft for our sins. And once you are in him, you are in him forever. And you can face life. And you can face death. And you can face judgment with peace and with confidence. You will never need to cast away Christ. And Christ will never cast you away. If you have anything in your hands and in your heart but him, abandon it now. Send it to the moles and the bats and fly to Christ, the saviour of sinners.